Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it is Friday, um, the 14th of August, um, and we have a pretty packed program um, this week. Um, so for this um, week of Green Left, we're going to be interviewing uh, longtime socialists um, from the United States, Malik Mia, uh, about the ongoing Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and we'll also have a recording um, of an online forum that happened over the weekend um, that was organised by Socialist Alliance and the Sue Bolton-Moreland team, uh, housing as a human right in the time of COVID-19. Um, so that will be um, the basis of our program today. So now just to introduce um, who we have on the program today. Um, Jacob, um, um, my name is Jacob, your presenter today. And then we have... Hi, yeah, so we're going to be your um, host um, for the program today. Unfortunately, Zane, um, our usual kind of presenter, wasn't able to make it today. And I guess just before um, we move on to the next kind of part of the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from, well, both I'm in the Wondery land of the Kulin Nation um, and the FreeCR studio is based in the Wondery land of the Kulin Nation, We'd like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present uh, and acknowledge that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land and that Green Left Radio and FreeCR supports the ongoing struggle for Aboriginal sovereignty and the fight for land rights and justice. Okay. Now, um, we might move on. I might just play a quick announcement Um, And then we might move on to the first part of our program. COVID-19 is a sickness that can spread from person to person. It can be dangerous, especially for our elders or people who are already unwell. We can all help stop the spread in our communities. Cover a cough with the inside of your elbow instead of your hand. Wash your hands with soap for at least 20 seconds after you cough or sneeze. Go to the toilet and before you make any food. Keep away from people who are sick, coughing or sneezing. Avoid going to places where there are lots of people. At this time, it is best to stay at home and away from other people as much as we can. If you're feeling unwell, have a fever, cough or sore throat, or worried about someone else, phone your doctor, clinic or medical service right away for advice. It is important to stay connected and strong as a community and keep our mob safe. Visit health.gov.au or your local health service for more information. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Hello, everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio, and we are very happy to have Malik Mia as our guest for today's program. 
Malik Mia is a long-time black rights and revolutionary socialist, a former aviation mechanic alongside being a contributing editor with the US socialist magazine Against the Current and has been a regular contributor for Green Left on the ongoing developments of the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States and is currently based in Los Angeles. So, hi Malik. Um, I'll just start by asking about the Black Lives Matter movement and it being one of the largest social revolts in the history of the United States. Um, and in the midst of a pandemic, we're watching the footage from the U.S. and still seeing thousands of people get out into the streets and put their lives on the line. We're seeing more white people joining in the protests and marching along black people and also getting tear gassed. Um, and, the, and the public seems to be on the Black Lives Matter side. So you know, we can see it's becoming a public concern. Everyday people are seeking out new ways to deal with societal harm. And it's a much broader movement now. Uh, even when you have a president who is hostile and unsympathetic to Black Lives Matter. So I just wanted to ask how you feel about the movement and how it's grown. Uh, <clears throat> yes, thanks for the question. Uh, just a little minor cor correction since I'm from Northern California outside San Francisco. Uh, people in California make a big distinction between Southern California where LA is and Northern California near San Francisco, uh, which is where I've lived. Um, let me just make the point the, the Black Lives Matter movement was a surprise. That's the first point. Surprise to me, surprised, uh, I would say, most socialists and other people. It's a, it was not that the protests happened. Uh, black people, every time there's police violence or other forms of attack by local governments, state governments, federal governments, have responded with protests, demonstrations, and so on. Uh, in the past, most of the time, these protests happened. Uh, it was mainly overwhelmingly you know, African-Americans protests and then the movement would die down or there'd be more uh, violence or arrests. What makes this movement unique is that very quickly after uh, George Floyd was murdered in Minnesota in May, white people and other minorities came to join the protests. That was different. And in fact, it spread to over 2,000 cities over the last two months. Uh, and then when I say 2,000 cities, I mean small towns and rural areas as well as in the big cities. So that was new. That, that was not anticipated and unheard of. In fact, some places like the city I live in, uh, which is overwhelmingly uh, a white, the, this, the largest ethnic minority is probably a Mexican or, or a Native American. Blacks come up third. Uh, most of the protests are like 95%. Uh, not uh, white, and they would carry signs like Black Lives Matters. Local stores had signs Black Lives Matter. So this was different. This was different, and I think the that wouldn't why it's so broad. Now <clears throat> it it's not over, and even though the media, I'm sure the international media too, like in Australia, they don't cover it as much, but the protests still go on regularly around the country, uh, and the demand still exists. One of the reasons is because uh, the Trump administration has taken a hard anti-Black Lives Matter position. Uh, the, the President Trump and his enablers refer to 
this movement as terrorists, uh, far left wing anarchists. Uh, they've called the uh, every name you can think of, but that hasn't changed the support for the movement. So that's that's why it continues. Uh, and then I would say the second point is that it's uh, the movement has gone beyond the initial demands to get arrest and prosecute the police who killed Floyd and killed other blacks around the country. Uh, it, quickly, the demands elevated to new demands like defund the police. And, uh, and even the more radical demand abolished the police. So it's taken on a bigger form, and, that, and that's why it continues to spread. Thanks, Malik. Yeah, you were you were talking about the media and the coverage of the protests, and you know the fact that they're calling it the movement of terrorists. Uh, I was reading one of your articles where you mentioned the Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, who's a progressive black politician who said far-right extremists are hoping to turn the George Floyd protests into a new civil war. Uh, did you want to just talk a bit more about the lie that the left is behind the violence at federal landmarks and Confederate monuments when it actually seems to be more likely that it's a it's an agent um, provocator on the right uh, and the Trump's smear campaign against Black Lives Matter leaders? Yes, the, uh, Keith Ellison, he was the first uh, black person elected to Congress who was actually a Muslim. So was the first Muslim elected to Congress who's of African-American descent. He was always targeted by the conservative movement. Uh, he supported Bernie Sanders four years ago. He supported him now, and he ran for attorney general a couple of years ago. So he is respected by political activists in Minnesota because of his record. Now, I remember interviews with him after May, after the uh, the killing, when people were saying it was Antifa, a group they, you know, make a group that doesn't give its uh, membership names or anything, that, that joins protests against uh, Nazis and Ku Klux Klan and other races. He said from the beginning that he didn't believe there was evidence that, that, that the left was involved. Uh, he said, but they didn't have the evidence. Uh, and, and I always believed that too. Some of the first things I've written, I always pointed out, uh, it, it was more likely it could have been police provocateurs or other pro, uh, right wing provocateurs. And that's because we have a long history in the black movement in this country where that is the case, where uh, cops or agents infiltrate organizations and carry out violence. And it turns out, and it came out recently, that in, in Minnesota, that the, one, the first attack on a business, an auto company, was by a white uh, vigilante who was tied to a, a right-wing group. And he was arrested. They call him the Umbrella Man. Uh, so this this that's the first proof. But the FBI... who Monitors, if they had a left-wing agitator or anarchist who did it, they would have been on the front page. It hasn't happened. Uh, the p- protests have always been peaceful. Uh, of course, at late night, you could have some uh, criminal elements who just take advantage of broken windows. But the actual initiation of this type of uh, extremist actions are more on the right, uh, not the left. Uh, the, the one reason I also say that most protests are organized that are peaceful, the organizers are aware of this and they try to self-discipline. 
they try to organize their own marshals, even though they, the, the media may not cover that. But most organizations, especially in the black movement, are aware of these provocateurs, so they try to discipline themselves. Uh, so that's why that's why what he said, I believe, is true. And, it, it, you know, it doesn't mean they're not going to continue to do that. Trump sent police to Portland, Oregon. He sent them to other cities uh, to try to provoke attacks. But all it did in Portland, Oregon, was to cause more people to come out and demonstrate. More people demonstrated. More people. <laughs> so they've sort of retreated on that so far. Yeah, I was watching a, a few of the protest footage and this one protester in Portland was saying, you know, we came out here dressed in t-shirts, you're spinning hula hoops and they started gassing us. And then, you know, so we came back with respirators and then they started shooting us. So then we came back with vests and then they started aiming for the head. And so then we started wearing helmets and now they're calling us terrorists. So yeah, it was just interesting to, to watch that footage. And, you know, he's asking who's, who's escalating it. It's certainly not us. Um, yes, and, that, and that's what's been going on. They, if you come out and try to defend yourself, they call you the person causing the violence. Exactly. Uh, more and more people see that as, as, as fraudulent. So, you know, I'll talk more about the difficulties of the movement, but on that particular issue, people see what it is and, and, and reject it. Yeah, I'm just sorry. I just lost my... I just lost my notes there. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to try to segue um, into a, a, another question, Malik. In one of your articles for Green Left, you mentioned that progress is made, then derailed, uh, reversed, or overwhelmed by powerful reactionary forces, uh, like the election of Barack Obama, the first African-American president, was then followed by someone like Trump. Uh, you were saying past gains are eroded and can only be defended by more agitation and popular struggle. Would you be able to tell us uh, about some of the gains won by the recent Black Lives Matter movement and how it has changed the way people fight for freedom and have inspired protests around the world? I think the most important change today is the political consciousness that has uh in the consciousness, social consciousness of the population about black lives matter. That is six years ago, seven years ago, black lives matter is a concept. Only black people really believed it. Very few other people understood it. In fact, the pushback was all lives matter, which was just a way of saying you're, you're, you're trying to say that you're special, which of course it wasn't the case. Only people who are attacked are blacks. Whites don't get attacked the same way in this country. This is not the view now. Most most young whites, I would say for sure, unless they support Trump, but most young whites recognize that. They say, yes, Black Lives Matter. They're, they're treated wrong. That's a change. That's a fundamental change. And it won't just disappear right away. So that, that's the most important change. Now, that change in consciousness means other demands are more possible. Other reforms are possible. But there's a lot that needs to be changed in this country. We have a criminal justice system that is always uh, that's racist, meaning uh, whatever activity a black or brown native indigenous person does, they get disproportionate penalties over whites. That hasn't that hasn't stopped yet. Uh, 
you continue every day somewhere in the country, some black person or, uh, you know, Latino or, uh, or, or gay, so they're, they're, they're arrested for no reason or beat up. That hasn't stopped. The difference is you get immediate response. You get more protests. Now, the long run would be if they change some rules to make it different. Now, we haven't seen that. Most of the discussion now, which is one of the reasons I made that point, is about co- what I call more cosmetic. You know, they, a lot of police stations say they won't use a chokehold. Okay, as a technique. Well, <laughs> the chokehold, yes, you shouldn't use, cho- you shouldn't use tear gas. Some, some cities say you shouldn't use tear gas. Tear gas is a weapon of war. It's banned in international war using those kind of chemical weapons, but it is allowed in cities, in countries. Why? You use it against your own people. Um, so those are good demands, but the problem with even those demands, like the chokehold, like they used in Minnesota and other cities, is it always has a caveat that says, well, unless the police man or person feels threatened. If you feel threatened, you may have the right to do that. There's the problem. Because the way the police work, and I'm sure it's true in Australia, you have the right to to protect yourself by just proclaiming you feel threatened by whoever you're attacking. So that's why the real demand is around defund and abolish, which is is which has not made a lot of progress, but what's being discussed. Yeah, uh, Malik, you were talking before about the shifting of consciousness, and given the nature of the mass movement and the impact it is having on shifting mass consciousness, uh, what has been the response of the Democrats in their attempts to co-op the movement for their so I was just wanting to ask, would you consider the recent nomination of Kamala Harris as the vice presidential nominee to be part of such co-option by the Democrats? Well, I wouldn't see that as a, a, co- a co-option of this movement. I do, But it is a significant decision because, uh, you know, we've never had in this country a, 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 even a woman, white woman elected president or vice president. So the idea of picking a woman who actually is a, a daughter of two immigrants, one from Jamaica, one from India, is significant. Uh, she, you know, put, whatever you think of her political views, it is significant that a, a, a woman from two immigrants and black and, and South Asian to be on the ballot will be seen as such. Just as when Barack Obama was nominated, it was considered very significant, even whatever his politics. So I don't think that's the case as far as the movement. I think uh, Kamala Harris so far, uh, she still says she supports the Black Lives Matter demand. She still says she supports protesting. Uh, we'll see how far along that goes. Uh, but she didn't support defund the police. And of course, not dismantling the police, which would be more important. Uh, but the pressure will now be on in the movement to stop mar- to stop marching because of the elections are in 83 days. So all Democrats will want to make sure people vote and they will want to go out to the streets and vote and not push this issue. The left-wing activists don't agree with that. Uh, they've never agreed with that. But, you know, we'll see how, how, you know, they'll keep protesting, but this will be a factor. Uh, but that's always true in a in elections, particularly presidential elections. Uh, the, the good news is that so far, even the black Democrats who are elected 
continue to say what John Lewis said, it's important, you know, to support protests, even if you should also go out and vote. That's, that's important. And uh, they've also, uh, while they don't support this defunding the police, they do say that we should have reforms. Now, what kind of reform? That's a debate. But they're not, they refuse to take the position of the government, Trump, that these, the movement is uh, anti-American, you know, enemy of the people, et cetera. Thanks, Malik. I just wanted to ask you a question on the the unions to strike for black lives. Uh, there was a strike for black lives, a, a mass walkout that occurred throughout the United States on July 20 of this year. And the Associated Press compared the strike to the Memphis sanitation strike back in 1968. Um, and you mentioned in your article in Green Left um, that this action combines the strength of the anti-racist movement and the unity of the unions. And we know that unionization in the U.S. is low. Um, how has the, B, the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement encouraged more union activists and workers' determination during the pandemic of COVID-19 and racism? And how crucial do you think it is that unions step up to join the anti-racist fight, especially when we can see the greatest impact of coronavirus is on oppressed communities? Well, as you said, the, the union movement is not very strong in this country, and the unions have not played a leadership role in the movement overall. I mean, workers who are in unions are very active. Uh, but, what, but, but what's happened is that a lot of the more militant unions, local unions, have joined the movement, have been in the streets. Man, the weakness is the leadership. So I'll give you an example, and I haven't written this yet. No. It's on my list, but uh, you know, in the meatpacking industry, that's uh, where it was one of the first industries that Trump said they had to go back to work because they needed to produce beef and pork and chicken. Now, most of those workers are Latinos, heavily Latinos, okay, and even and but they're still unionized, and the union they're in, uh, unfortunately, twenty some years ago was basically broken by the employers, but they were able to keep the union. So the union contracts still exist, but they, they don't have much leverage. So even though the union had the correct position that she have PPE, the protective equipment, they should help the workers, they, they, it didn't really happen for the most part. And they would not call like safety strikes, which is what you should really do. You say, don't go to work until they provide. They wouldn't do that. So a lot of workers got the virus in these plants, uh, and a lot of them were sick, some died, uh, and and that's still an issue. Uh, and uh, because a lot of these workers don't have very good health care, like most countries in the industrial world, we don't have national health care, so you have to do it with your employer. So a lot of these workers had to go to work. Now, the unions, like I said, they take the formally correct position, but they don't do anything. They should actually, I've, I've, I've you know, People I know, I always say, the only way you're going to stop this, you have to. You, if you can't formally strike, you can do safety acts. Say, until it's safe, I can't go to work. But the union would have to back you. So that's not been the strength. Except for the longshoremen. You know, they did a day of action in June, on Juneteenth, 
around the uh, end of slavery up in the West Coast, and they did shut down for a day. But that union has always been a militant union, and they were involved in the business. Overall, the AFL-CIO, our main federation, gives lip service to the union, to this stuff. But they don't do a lot because they include also the police union, which I don't, I don't consider unions. I call them unions, but they're not. <laughs> they're basically, I call them like cartels in the drug, drug industry. Uh, they're, the role of the police union is to attack the protesters, is to, is to uh, su- support the right and so on. So they want to keep those unions in the federation. So they're, they're not doing what they should do. Now, technically right now, they support Joe Biden, the Democrat. So they're going to come out and try to get Biden elected. But they have not been front and center of, of, of the, of the uh, protest movement. But there are some local unions like the Longshore, like uh, uh, some of the meatpacker workers, some of the health, obviously the healthcare union, the nurses union is one of the most militant in California and other states. They've, lead, they've been out there. But they're in a weaker position because, you know, they need the support of the entire labor movement. So it's positive to see what's going on, but I would say it's the Black Lives Matter movement helping provide the cover for the unions to do more. It's not that the unions have taken the lead. It's the Black movement taking the lead and help drag along the other forces. Thanks, Malik. You, you mentioned the nurses union there being the most militant, and I would imagine that that union is predominantly female. Um, yes. Yeah. The and I was just gonna, you know, just maybe have a chat to you about the women, women's role in the in the future of Black Lives Matter. You know, the the Black Lives Matter movement. It's an old movement. It just changes names. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Started during enslavement. The civil rights movement, it's been run by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. It's been run by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, John Lewis, uh, Dr. King's movement. But the recent Black Lives Matter movement was created by three black women, um, Alicia Garza, uh, Patrice Colors, and Opal Tometi after George Zimmerson's uh, acquittal for Trayvon Martin's death, who was a 17-year-old who was shot back in 2012. And women have been organizing protests. They've been organizing rallies, marches, dines, and have been showing leadership in responses to police brutality. And I just wanted to ask you, how, how are Black women affected by police brutality and how do you think they're shaping the future of Black Lives Matter? Uh, No, that's a very important point. Uh, Black women have always played a leadership role in the civil rights movement historically, but they never got the credit. They they were more behind the scenes, or even when they weren't behind the scenes, they didn't get the credit. (laughs) So uh, what's new about this movement, this phase over the last six years, as you said, the, the three black women who are also gay, they were the ones who initiated it. A lot of the leaders in the local, they don't all take the same name. They have different local names. Like in Minnesota, they have one name and they may have a different name in different cities, but they're all sort of affiliated to the concept of the movement for black lives. A lot of the, the most, uh, the main, a lot of the leaders are women, black women. Um, 
black queers women too. So it's a, it's much, it's, it's different than anything that was in the civil rights era of the 1960s, uh, or 70s. It's much more prominent. They're playing a leadership role. Uh, you saw the big, there was a big demonstration in Brooklyn last month of black, of queers, black queers, uh, gay people, and it was made, it was led by women. So it, it, it's a big role. The question is, uh, you know, getting the recognition, and that's more the case, I think. Now, black women, of course, are attacked by police. They don't get the same prominent news. The Breonna Taylor case, which has gotten international news, uh, because she was an essential worker, you know, emergency medical technician. She was killed in her home. Uh, and she still, the police in that case still haven't been arrested. Nothing's happened to them. But her name has become known all over the country and it's, it's become a big issue. But women all the time, I just give you an example. Just last week, a few days ago, uh, in Colorado, another a Midwest state, uh, this woman and five girls were going out to a little spa in the, in, in this town. They were stopped by the police. They claimed their car was stolen, which it wasn't. One, the woman driving had her teenagers and her young daughter of six. They were all pulled out of the car by gunpoint, thrown on the ground and handicapped and handcuffed. They never told them why. Okay. The only reason anyone knows about it because someone filmed it, you know, with their phone, but they, they denied the police as typical, just pretended that they, 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 they were not following orders, but the video showed. They just asked, why are you stopping us? So these were all women and girls. So this is very typical. These things happen all the time. It hasn't changed. So the only change is that we have cameras. <laughs> we have video. And now people know. But the other side is not that people just know. People go out to the protests. People demand action. That's what's new. That still is new. We see how, how long it goes on. But the key for, I think women are playing a, a, a much bigger role than ever before. They're leading a lot of these organizations, leading a lot of these protests. And I think that's one reason it's so strong and powerful. Yeah, thanks for that, um, Malik. Um, I just wanted to jump in um, and ask a bit of a question. Um, I've been following, there's been quite a lot of recent commentary on the kind of state of America at the moment uh, from The Intercept and Democracy Now!, um, and of course, this is what I've been hearing. Um, I want to hear your comments on the certain, the level, I guess, of social dysfunction, uh, in the United States, whether, you know, the whole COVID-19 pandemic is far worse than anywhere else in the world. There's also a growing kind of far right movement. And in fact, that far right movement has been, in a sense, been attracted to some, you know, certain sort of conspiratorial ideas against COVID-19. In fact, there's this whole debate about, I noticed, about people refusing to wear masks. Um, there was even a recent study that said one in fir- um, 30, 30, 33% of Americans would refuse to get a COVID-19 vaccine if it existed. And of course, then going to, a, I guess, another direction, um, some people are commenting that uh, they could see that the result of all these contradictions in the United States could lead to a potential sort of civil war kind of scenario in the United States. And I kind of want to hear, I guess, all your kind of comments 
on all that because I guess all those sort of social contexts and that sort of big claim seem to be pretty linked. <laughs> no, that's an important question too because the pandemic is still, you know, we're still in the first phase of the pandemic six months after it started. And it's only in the first phase because we haven't done anything. We've done very little because President Trump, you know, he doesn't believe, he first called it a hoax and I think he still believes it's a hoax. He doesn't believe it's real. He says it will go away. He, he, he also, he doesn't wear a mask. Maybe he wore it once, twice and he doesn't wear it. Uh, he urges all the schools to public schools to reopen the colleges to reopen. He, so if you got the president and he has a 40% base, electoral base in this country, it stays the same. He's got 80%, 90% Republicans still support him. So you take that 40% base and you spread it across the country. There are a lot of people who don't believe scientists. There are actually health officials in this country in different states that had to resign because of threats to their life. Okay. Because they tell people what they should do. So it's a real problem. It's a real issue. Uh, and the second thing, so the pandemic is getting worse. I mean, we, we are four and a half percent of the world's population. We have 25% of the cases, 25% of the deaths. And it's not, it's not getting smaller. Uh, so yes, everything you say. Now, what, the, the, the political problem is that Trump also doesn't believe the elections will be uh, democratic. He's, he refuses to say if he'll accept the presidential election in November. So if you have the pr- president, Say something. And, uh, he says that if, if, if he says he thinks elections rigged because he says if you mail on a ballot, it's, it's automatically illegal, even though in our country, you know, the military have been mailing in ballots since the Civil War in the 1800s. So it's not like a new thing. Uh, so you have that problem. And there's a lot of far right organizations and far right groups. And we, we, we have, uh, a situation where the largest uh, media station, as far as uh, talking heads, is Fox, Fox News. So they 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 get everybody all angry, and they they just make up lies. And then there's two or three other far right media outlets. So yes, things could get pretty hot heated. The problem is the Democrats and liberals just assume it will work out. They claim it. Will they're not, you know, they're concerned, but they're not. They believe if if they get a big enough vote, Trump will accept it, and then they're and they'll they'll walk him out of president. We have a gap. We're not like a parliament. You get a, on November third, you have a presidential election, but you don't take office till January twentieth. <laughs> so there's two months before the new president comes in. There's a lot of havoc can be done by Trump if he actually loses the vote. So yes, I don't I don't know if it would be a civil war. Uh, it's too early to say, but it, it, many things could happen. Many things could happen because Trump is willing. To, he doesn't follow any of the traditions of normal capitalist parties and rulers in this country. He could he could just say the military is going to guard all the uh, state ballots and uh, shut down uh, voting booths. Will that happen? I don't know. Could it happen? Yes. And then we'll see what people will do. So it's it's an unknown. It's an unknown. But uh, I, I, I think it's uh, the pandemic 
that could do them under because it's not getting better. And as Republicans start are dying too, it's not just you know liberals or something. You know, just to know the racism. I didn't talk about the racism. Part of what racism does. See, right now, disproportionately people dying are black, you know, indigenous people and brown people. Okay. In Trump's mind, that's a good thing, right? Because if that's most of the people dying, what does he care? His base is not dying. The other point is that it's disproportional for seniors over 65. Again, even though he gets a lot of votes from seniors, but again, that's not what he considers his main base. So there's a lot of that could go on that that uh, the pandemic, but you know, the, 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 there's a possibility we could have 250,000 dead people by the election, maybe 300,000. Think of that. that so it, it, that couldn't be his downfall, but he doesn't go play by the normal rule book. So we'll see. My view is the mass struggle is the only way to stop him. Black Lives Movement has to spread to other communities. And these protests must get bigger as we go toward the elections, and we'll see if it happens. Uh, the Democrats, of course, would try to get people just to go out to vote. So it's unclear how this will unfold. Yeah, just finally, uh, Molly, going back to the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, just because COVID-19 has put a spotlight on racial inequality, uh, and in one of your articles you wrote for Green Left about John Lewis shortly after his death, you ended it by saying that being a good troublemaker and breaking immoral laws is the first step towards full equality and that an end to systemic racism will require an anti-capitalist revolution. And you know, it's exciting that everyday people who wouldn't necessarily think of themselves as radicals or socialists are saying things like, you know, using words like defund and abolish and, you know, abolish the police. Um, and as socialists, we agree that oppression, including racism, are endemic to capitalism. What do you think are some of the challenges that socialist organizations, like, for instance, the DSA, uh, Democratic Socialists of America, are facing right now? Um, you know, what should be the role of socialists right now yeah so uh, in the United States there there's different little uh, there's different socialist groups from the more traditional what I call Marxist organizations uh, to organizations like DSA which uh, which which are more what I would call in the social democratic uh, perspective and I used to work social democratic like in Europe because the the DSA has been very supportive of the Black Lives Movement, and they're in it, and they got a lot of the young people in it on campuses and other places. But at the same time, they they support the Democratic Party, even if they're critical of it. They they they're going to vote for Joe Biden, uh, and just automatically. I mean, that's their view. Not doesn't mean everyone in it will do that, but from from you know, if you are a more traditional Marxist. You don't see voting for one of the capitalist parties as the way forward to continue to raise the class struggle. Uh, I would be more inclined to say, since there's no real socialist alternative, you, you would support probably the Green Party candidate for president because the program Howie Hawkins is laying out is much more progressive. Uh, but that 
that's a separate question. On the actual movement, socialists are in it for whatever currents they're involved, and most of them would obviously educate that the, the source of the problem is capitalism. Now, how they explain it's another issue, but they they agree that this, how do you deal with racism? The problem with racism in the United States every time you make a reform like this, what you asked earlier, it can be taken away, right? Because you you push it. Like in the 60s, you push for the right to vote. Now it's been eroded. You push for housing inequality, then it's eroded because you have to challenge the system itself because the system is based on what? The private ownership of all wealth or means of production in the, in the classic sense. So as long as that's the case, they, they work overtime to take back any gains. So we lost many of the gains, one in the 60s and 70s, because the ruling class kept pushing it back, pushing it back including the Voting Rights Act. So now it poses the question again of capitalism, you do that. So socialists are the only ones can explain it because we can explain the system. But, you know, we're a minority, so the key is to be involved in the struggle, which socialists are, and to try to get the people trying to ask the more fundamental question. Well, you say it's capitalism, how do, you, how do we change it? And you say, well, you got to build a revolutionary movement that challenges the way the system is done. Uh, and then you raise different demands that move in that direction. So that's what I think most socialists are trying to do. Uh, as we go into November elections, because they're divide among socialists like DSA and others, you know, they probably shift to supporting Biden and Harris more uh, down the road than, and still support the protests, but they'll put more energy in that, which I wouldn't think is the correct way to go. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Malik. Uh, did you have any other final comments that you wanted to contribute or anything I have forgotten to cover? Oh, I think you'd covered uh, most everything. The only thing I would say, if we, if we, you know, it would be useful at some point for the socialist left to have more of a discussion of how to transform this consciousness we beginning to see the, you know, revolutionary consciousness, because that's a whole nother discussion, because you can't just go on and move and say, yes, I support the protests, I'm involved, which is good, but then you have to say, okay, you people who want to go beyond that, you need to get involved in an organization that thinks like that, and that's that's the weakness we have in this country right now. I mean, the best is probably DSA, but then they have the problem with all that for politics. Thanks, Malik. That's a great way to end this interview um yeah the black lives matter movement is it's changing the world and yeah we thank you for your time to speak with us this morning or in your case afternoon hi yeah thanks um thanks for that interview um malik um for our listeners i'm just going to play a quick announcement and we might move on to the next part of our program feminism and class struggle If you like our work, become a supporter of Greenleft Weekly from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5 p.m. and talk to a staff member. That's 03 3CR Community Radio, here to stay.
Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And on the program, we were just doing an interview with Malik Mia, who is a longtime revolutionary socialist and black rights activist from San Francisco in the United States about the ongoing Black Lives Matter movement. Now, for the next part of our program, I'm going to play some pre-recordings of an online forum that happened over on Saturday, um, the 8th of August, um, titled Housing as a Human Right in the Time of COVID-19. Um, hope you enjoy um, the program. The human right during COVID-19 uh, forum, community forum that is being put on by the uh, Sue Bolton Moreland team and Socialist Alliance. Uh, my name is Pauline Galvin. I'll be um, chairing and convening the meeting today. We've got a number of speakers uh, to take part in the forum today. And before we get on to that, I'd like to take this opportunity to acknowledge that we are on Indigenous land, that we are this I and this meeting is hosted on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and that this land has never been ceded. Uh, I pay my respects to their Indigenous elders past and present and those that are emerging and to uh, any other Indigenous elders that are present at today's meeting. Uh, so this meeting has been put together as part of a series of forums of a number of different topics uh, of local interest in preparation really for the um, discussion uh, we around the upcoming council elections. Sue Bolton Moreland team is a group of socialists and also community uh, activists. I myself am an independent community independent, and I'll be standing as a candidate in the South Ward for the Sue Bolton Moreland team. Sue Bolton um, is a candidate is a, a councillor of Moreland for a number of. Uh, years now. This is her, will be hopefully her third term coming up. And Sue has really been a watchword for community values, for uh, caring about people. I think uh, Sue might describe it as solidarity, um, but that ability to, act, so really caring about people in a really active and actual way, looking and working for the what's best for everybody. So that solidarity and genuine community support, I think, is a real touchstone of uh, the work that Sue Bolton has been doing on the council over the last few years. And frankly, if I do half a good a job at that community support as Sue has done for the North East Ward, if I then people of the South Ward will be doing very well. Um, we've got a number of speakers that we've invited uh, today. Uh, the, we've got uh, public housing activist Maha, uh, Mahir Mohammed. We have Jenny Smith, who's a community legal, uh, Northern Community Legal Centre CEO. We have Monica Hart, who is a housing crisis worker, who is also a candidate for the Sue Bolton Moreland team. 
and we have Jacob Andrewatha, who is a public housing activist. Um, Jacob has been involved with Sue on a number of community public housing actions in the city of Moreland, um, and he'll be speaking. He's also a candidate for the South Ward. Uh, we'll be having an opportunity for the speakers to do some talking, introduce the topics that are most of concern to them and that they would like to share with us. And at the end of those periods of talk, the, um, we will then open it up for comments and for um, questions and discussion and all of that good juicy stuff. Uh, we'll give the the um, speakers about 12 minutes each. I'll give um, each of the speakers uh, a heads up when they've um, come into the end of that period so that they've got a few minutes to wrap up and then um, the next speaker will be on. So uh, I think really today's theme is really around affordable housing, about how the, particularly with the COVID uh, pandemic having such an impact on employment and people's ability to pay for their, their lives, the, the uh, affordability is a long-standing issue with housing in Moreland. People are being forced out of Moreland as the inner suburbs become more gentrified. And we really want to be able to come up with a system that allows Moreland to maintain the rich cultural diversity that has enriched all of our lives. Uh, so I will, uh, unless there's something that I've forgotten to say, I will uh, invite our first speaker, Maha Mohammed to um, to unmute himself. Uh, Maha is a public housing activist and a Flemington estate resident. Thank you, Maha. Thanks, Pauline. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'll begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, uh, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Um, so my name is Mihir. I'm a public housing resident. I've lived in Flemington public housing estate uh, for about 20 years now. Um, obviously, uh, what's happening now with COVID and the pandemic around the world, it's uh, shining a great light on um, kind of the inequities and the uh, injustices that are happening. And, you know, some of the most vulnerable people that are most at risk um, of catching um, coronavirus um, just due to social inequities and um, systemic issues um, are most vulnerable and also the ones with least access to housing. So uh, in the Flemington Housing Estate, we actually recently came out of lockdowns. We were in hard lockdowns um, about a month ago, and uh, that lasted for about seven, eight days in Flemington. Um, and then in one of the other towers, it lasted for about 14, 15 days. So uh, we've recently seen, obviously, with the pandemic and the harsh lockdowns, um, the state government trying to do a fair bit in um, trying to provide crisis accommodation to people who were sleeping rough, um, people who were kind of in immediate need of housing. Um, uh, current figures are around 2,000 people who have currently accessed that service um, and have been given temporary accommodation in hotels and motels and um, crisis, um, crisis accommodation. Uh, I work in the housing space uh, one day a week um, and, you know, there is such a great need for housing in Victoria, particularly uh, more so than other states where 
uh, Victoria tends to spend the least on on public housing and uh, just public housing stock. Uh, successive governments have ignored public housing. Um, they haven't uh, done much to increase housing stock, public housing stock. And what we're seeing is a shift from um, shift from public housing to the privatisation and um, the uh, transition to social housing. So social housing providers are taking ownership of of that. And um, you know, as a public housing resident, um, what we do need to do is advocate for a lot more public housing. Public housing is owned and managed by uh, the, the government. Um, so DHHS provides that service. It's managed and maintained by um, DHHS. And uh, with social housing providers, there's often uh, a kind of a difference in, in how the housing is, uh, is managed. Um, you tend to have a residual where you know, people that are the most vulnerable often don't meet the criteria or uh, aren't selected um, as part of the, the social housing, uh, you know, the, the waiting list. Uh, in Victoria, obviously, there's about 90,000 to 100,000 people on the on the waiting list for public housing. And uh, with current public housing stock, it's nowhere near enough to address that uh, that very long list. So uh, what we've seen recently with the coronavirus pandemic as well, um, the crisis accommodation that's being offered to people most in need, people who are sleeping, sleeping rough, um, is that uh, these arrangements are in place until April of 2021. Uh, with no um, no strategy or um, no guarantee of housing um, for the long term. So um, we've also seen the moratorium on evictions and uh, rent uh, rent increases uh, until about September, end of September. And the state government hasn't really said what's going to come after that. So for a lot of people, obviously in Victoria, we're still in the hard lockdowns, now, you know, stage four restrictions. And we don't know what that's going to mean for a lot of people who, you know, have either uh, lost their jobs or, uh, you know, facing rent stress. Rent stress itself uh, being defined as um, paying more than 30% of your um, your income is, uh, I guess, that criteria puts about 40% of Victorians already into that category, uh, people who are facing rent stress. And so now more than ever, it's, uh, I think, the ideal time um, to, to be talking about public housing, what can be done to increase public housing. And uh, with uh, over the next couple of months, uh, where there, there's a prediction that more than 250,000 people are going to lose, you know, lose their jobs and become redundant. Uh, now more than ever, we need to ensure that more is done to uh, address the um, shortage of public housing. Uh, the reason we push for public housing, and there are quite a few movements on the ground who are advocating for public housing, is because, uh, first of all, public housing um, is uh, the, the contract, I guess, and uh, the way it's managed is um, indefinite. You, you, the price of the rent is uh, capped at 25% of your income. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the, the properties itself are meant to address the number of people in the house, uh, in the family or people who need the housing. So, you know, two and three bedroom apartments for larger families, um, sometimes four or five bedrooms for people with uh, much bigger families, seven or eight people, um, five or six kids. And uh, yeah, definitely um, uh, another reason is uh, the, the social connections that people have within these public housing estates and, you know, the importance of that to people's mental health and uh, well-being. So in Flemington, obviously, um, where I live, um, it's one of the nine properties that the state government has recently earmarked for redevelopment. So we've got four towers, and up until recently, there were about 12 walk-ups. Uh, those 12 walk-ups were recently demolished, um, and uh, the state government is planning to redevelop them. 
um, and that redevelopment is coming uh, with a gain of uh, 20 additional uh, social housing units. Um, so what that means is out of 198 units that were recently demolished, uh, we're now seeing um, a total of 218 uh, new social housing units. So that's a net increase of 20 units. Um, but all of that comes at the cost of uh, about 800 private units, um, private dwellings. So for an area that's already got four towers uh, with about six or 700 units, uh, as well as the 218 social housing units that are going to be provided, what we're going to see is almost a doubling uh, in the number of uh, properties or units um, on the estate. Now, uh, apart from population density and all those other issues, uh, what we're really fighting for at the moment is for the state government to say, well, we're not going to just try and aim for the minimum. Um, we're not going to try and just, you know, increase social housing by 20, by 20 units. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to push for, um, I guess, more of those uh, private units to be converted or at least owned by um, the, the government and converted to public housing. So uh, Flemington is one of those states uh, earmarked for redevelopment and the, the works have already commenced. But uh, across Victoria, um, the same same thing is happening in uh, in Preston, in uh, Northcote, in um, in Richmond, I think in uh, North Melbourne and Ascot Vale, and uh, a few other um, areas across Victoria. So um, all of that is happening, as as I said, um, with uh, an increase or the transition to social housing. And what we're actually seeing is a decrease in public housing. So as more public housing stock is being demolished and being replaced by social housing. What that means is uh, over time, we have less and less public housing uh, available for people. And so, as I said before, I think um, so the coronavirus has definitely shown, shown a light on, on that. Um, what we need to do in particular with the economic downturn that we're facing now from coronavirus is try to increase the amount of public housing stock. Uh, that would bolster, I guess, um, jobs um, and em employment um, for people and also um, make... Uh, public housing available to those who, who really need it. Um, so uh, I don't have much more to add than that. Um, I, I probably um, have a fair bit I, I can say. Um, I, I do work in the space, as I said, and, uh, you know, some of the things you see, it's a very important issue. Some of the things you see and hear about, um, it's just, um, yeah, just boggles your mind. So it would be good to, um, yeah, uh, I guess hear from some of the other speakers as well, but I'm happy to take any questions afterwards and, um, yeah, definitely speak on that. Right, you're listening, you're listening to a recording of a speech by Mahia Muhammad uh, from a public forum that was organised by Social Alliance and Sue Bolton Moreland team titled Housing as a Human Right in the Time of COVID-19. Now, I'm just going to take a bit of a break um, and might um, we'll play the rest of um, the program. But first off, I'd like to play a quick announcement. Brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. 
subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419-8377. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Now, just before, I will be playing uh, some more talks from the online forum Housing as a Human Right in the Time of COVID-19. But first off, i like to just break up the program a bit by going through the Green Left Activist Calendar. Now, on, in terms of upcoming events, all these events are online um, due to the current kind of stage four restrictions in Victoria, which um, restrict... Uh, which may, basically means we cannot organise any in-person events. In fact, we're not even really allowed to leave our house, except for a central reason. But here are a number of online meetings that are going to be coming up. And the first online meeting I'd like to announce is on on Friday at 4pm. There's going to be a Stop Adani action, Stop Adani Hour of Power, which is um, stating, join us for an hour of online action to pressure the banks to rule out funding Adani. And so that's happening on Friday, August the 14th, 4pm. And if you search Stop Adani on website and on Facebook, you should be able to find a link to the online event. On Saturday, um, August uh, the 15th at 12pm, author and cultural critic Mickey Kidell discusses how mainstream feminism fails to consider how race, class, sexual orientation and ability intersect with gender. So you can find the um, link to that event by searching up the Melbourne's Writers Festival uh, and look for online forum Hood Feminism. So just search the Melbourne Writers Festival, um, which is, I presume has a number of online kind of events um, happening. Now, the next event is there is going to be an online forum, the Future Faulkner, which is happening on Saturday, August the, tw- um, the 15th, 2pm, which is an opportunity for people from different parts of the Faulkner community to come together to discuss the future of more of the suburb. It's our online event via Zoom, and it's been initiated by the Sue Bolton Moreland team. So if you go on the SueBoltonMorelandTeam.org, uh, you should be able to find a link to the Zoom um, to be able to access the meeting. The next event is an online forum, Seven Years Too Long, Ending um, Australia's Offshore Hell. And that's a public forum that's being organised by Refugee Action Collective, and it's going to be happening on Monday, August the 17th, 6.30pm. And if you'd like to get to find out where how to register in advance for this meeting, go to the Refugee Action Collective Facebook page, or alternatively, you can look up the Refugee Action Collective website. The next event is an online film fundraiser, Stingray Sisters, which is a highly acclaimed documentary set in the remote community of Magrida, Ahinamland. Noni, Alice and Grace navigate their 20s while moving as they always have between two cultures and two homes. Which And this event will be followed by a Q&A with director Katrina Shennels. If you're interested in coming along to this film screen, go to trybooking.com forward slash BKYIJ to receive the Zoom link to the screening. 
a fun. Um, this is a fundraiser for the Sue Bolton Moreland team standing in the October council election. So that's happening on Friday, August the 28th, 6:30 p.m. And if you want to find out more information, go out to, go to the Sue Bolton Moreland team some other events that are kind of happening, uh, there is going to be an online talk by Bruce Pascal on August 24th, um, 6.30pm, which is an online event via Zoom. If you'd like to register event, search online talk Bruce Pascal. There's also an online forum, how the North East Link Tow Road will affect you. Um, this is a forum with experts, community members and local activists to find out how the North East Link will affect you. Um, to get information and registration on how to um, um, be involved, go to the Friends of the Earth Melbourne website and then you should be able to find out how to register for the event. So that's happening on Thursday, August the 27th, 7.30pm. Then there is an online, another online forum, Back Black Palestinian Forum, Countering Colonialism and Dispossession. And that's happening on Saturday, August the 29th, 7.30pm, featuring Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions co-founder Omar with key First Nations and Palestinian Australian speakers discussing the shared experience of dispossession, state-based discrimination and racism and how to counter it. You can register for this website, um, for this event, by going to the bdsaustralia.net.au um, website and then you can find the, the link to the event and be able to um, register and be, in, um, be involved. And then on the, yep, I think that's pretty much it for the activist calendar. Now I will just, um, for the rest of the program, um, I'll continue by playing more I'm playing from more speeches from the online forum, Housing as a Human Right in the Time of COVID-19. Uh, but just before we move on to that, I'll just play a quick announcement. Um, our next speaker is Jacob Andrew Offer. Jacob is um, a member of Socialist Alliance Melbourne. He's a public housing activist and a candidate for the Sue Bolton Moreland team in the upcoming elections. He's standing in the South Ward. So, Jacob, if you could unmute yourself and you have 12 minutes. Yeah, thank you very much, um, Pauline. Yes, to um, start off, um, I guess I would like to say it is no exaggeration to say that for a long time we have been living through a housing crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed this crisis even further. As tens of thousands of people have lost their job as a result of, of this pandemic, um, there are also thousands of people who have lost their housing as a result, or in another case, experiencing housing stress. For example, you know, there are stories of people being evicted during this pandemic, stories of landlords refusing to negotiate rent decreases or even deferrals of rent. And of course, you could probably have the whole situation of people who are, have been put in difficult positions to pay off their mortgages. The social crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic has even been felt more sharply in other countries uh, like the United States. In fact, if there was ever a return to normal, um, as the media sort of likes to talk about in terms of a post-COVID kind of time, probably more, it's more than likely that more issues are going to arise um, within this space because most government policy in response to COVID-19 has been the implementation of renting or mortgage deferrals, which means that 
potentially thousands of people will be put in positions where they'll be expected to pay off months and months of debts that they won't be able to afford. The official unemployment rate is 13%, but the real figures will be much higher. And of course, they, obviously, you know, there will be some people in this period who will get new jobs, but most people aren't going to necessarily magically get work. We've already had a situation of low wages and not enough work in the before the pandemic. Um, the pandemic is just making things more severe and spreading the economic pain to larger sections of the population. People will potentially end up in a horrific um, um, debt crisis. Um, there was a recent um, ang- Angley uh, Care Rental Affordability um, snapshot that was conducted as early as this February. It found that even taking into account the increase in job seeker, that the majority of rental properties on the housing market were considered unaffordable for those on welfare or low out income. The response of the federal government and state governments have been completely inadequate when it comes to the support of renters, and most of their policies have prioritised commercial renters and landlords over residential renters. In fact, one of the key issues is even when support has been given through the states, and, you know, a certain credit to Victoria, they, had, they have implemented more measures um, than some of the other states, Generally, they often revolve around a negotiation between your landlord and the tenant. And, of course, there's also extra sort of bureaucratic sort of hoops you kind of have to go through, like you have to prove your income, uh, et cetera, prove that you had a a certain level of loss. Um, We need genuine support um, for renters during this pandemic, which could start with a suspension of rents and a ban on evictions. At this stage, um, the Renters and Housing Union, which has been formed, in, I guess, in response to this pandemic, is campaigning for the eviction moratorium to be extended and broadened until September 2021. An amnesty on rental payments must be enacted for renters to um, be able to financially stay at home. All rental debts occurred are to be forgiven with no fault or penalty. New and existing rent reduction agreements must be below 30% of uh, tenants' income as projected in September and to persist for the length of the pandemic. Penalties must apply to landlords, agents and agencies who refuse to negotiate rental agreements in good faith and who infringe upon our rights as renters. And I think, you know, we should absolutely support um, the, the, this campaign and some, a number of these kind of demands. And at the same time, for ordinary people, um, especially working people who might be expiring to be homeowners or existing ones, there should be a suspension of all loan, credit and mortgage repayments for six months with no accumulation of interest. For anyone who is struggling to pay off their mortgage as a result of this crisis due to losing work and income. One of the more interesting things I think that has occurred in response to this crisis is that governments across Australia, and of course even around the world, this has been a notable trend. Um, they have been forced to house thousands of homeless people who were normally rough sleepers um, on the streets in hotels, motels, and empty street accommodation. The fact that this has happened shows what is what is possible, yet also raises the question, why is it that we even had thousands of people who were homeless on the streets to begin with? Why aren't governments giving building public housing instead of giving massive handouts to private hotels and private landlords to actually pay uh, for this? 
community service um, organisations have been calling for housing for homeless people to be made permanent, and I would absolutely kind of um, support that call. The inequality when it comes to housing can be seen as a direct result of how housing is tied to the market. Housing in Australia is often is regarded as a commodity, not a human right and a need. The commodification of housing is what has caused the um, cost of housing, regardless of whether you are paying rent or mortgage out of reach of thousands of people. Some people have, you know, a naive kind of belief that if we, especially in the case of local council, that if we let developers build lots of high rise, that will bring down the cost of housing. If this, true, if this was, were true, we would have had very cheap housing in the inner city. But in fact, most um, inner city housing uh, is pretty much out of reach for most people. And in fact, I think there's pretty much a trend that most people generally live in kind of shared rooms to be able to afford to live in the city. Skyrocketing housing prices, I believe, is a direct result of speculation where property developers buy up properties and land and manipulate the market by land raking. The privatisation of land development um, leads to many um, leads to many opportunities. Sorry, sorry about this. Sorry about this. <laughs> The privatisation of land development leads to many opportunities for corrupt rezoning deals between um, local de between developers and local councillors and political parties. This is the case in Council Casey Council now and previously in Phillip Island with Liberal Party leader Matthew Guy. Land development, I believe, should be taken out of the hands of private developers. This is the background to... This is the background... Um, this is the back. Oh, sorry about this. This is the background to dizzy house in prices and rents. When a developer is developing for profit and people are buying properties as an investment instead of, uh, of a live in a place, it can be profitable to buy a property and leave it empty. We have a huge number of vacant flats which are vacant for years, which could be taken over by the government for public housing. And of course, I guess I think the most effective solution for this to the housing crisis is for the government to initiate a COVID recovery program of massive investment in public housing, not giving handouts to private landlords and not passing the buck to housing associations, but to build generally affordable public housing with secure tenancies. Public housing has been the victim of decades of neoliberal privatisation policies where whole sales pitch has developed about how the public sector has failed and how much the better the private sector is. Politicians, government bureaucrats, journalists and academics have to told us for years how public housing has failed. That is an old solution that never worked. How public states are terrible places which are dysfunctional. The spin has justified decades of refusal to do adequate maintenance, demolition of public housing and selling of off of the land. Transfer of public housing to associations and handout to private uh, private landlords, but a point-blank refusal to build public housing. This is an Australian-wide policy, but it has also happened in Britain. The attempts by all these figures to stigmatise public housing estates and the people who live there meant that some uh, health workers who did the COVID-19 testing were scared of the tenants until they started testing and found that the tenants are people like them who are warm and friendly, not the stereotypes. One of the critically important reasons why the government needs to invest in general 
public housing is that unlike private tenancies and community housing, public housing tenancies are permanent and secure and capped at 25% of your income in rent unless you earn over the income threshold. And if you're paying full rent and lose your job, the rent your rent goes down to 25% of your income in rent. That doesn't happen in private rental or community housing. The fact that public housing has secure tenancies allows communities to develop. Security of tenancy means that people are living there long enough to get to know each other, to work out who you get to look after your kids when there is an emergency, when there is emergency, who you can borrow money from until you pay come through, who, who can give you a lift to the doctor, etc. It also means that it creates a stronger basis to fight for better amenities. While this can occur in private housing, these social relationships can get bust up because people often have to constantly move every six months to 12 months to two years. Even community housing, known as social housing, isn't as secure as public housing. It's better than private rental, but it houses very few people on Centrelink payments and it charges 30% of your income in rent, unlike the 25% in public housing. And if you're paying full rent in community housing and you lose your job, it isn't common for your rent to be reduced to 30% of your income in rent. This is why we need to fight for genuine public housing and challenge the politicians, academics, journalists and government bureaucrats who are waging a propaganda war of stigmatisation to justify getting rid of public housing. A big uh, junk ejection um, of public housing could even result in lower housing in the private sector. You know, for this public forum that has been jointly organised between Social Science and Sue Bolton Moreland team, while local council can't resolve the issue of generally affordable housing, there are some things that local councils, such as Moreland Council, can do. Local councils um, can use council land um, to build affordable housing with a preference towards getting the state government to build public housing on it. And I think that is something um, that any sort of councillor that is elected has to campaign for and fight for. Um, while it is important that we significantly increase the building of public housing, there's also a need to take other action because of the dominance of the private housing market. We need the state government to change the state planning scheme to allow councils to force developers developments of four storeys to make 20% of the units affordable and 20% accessible. Local councils need to put the need to pressure the state government to make these changes. If these changes had already been in place four years ago, thousands of affordable housing units could have been created. At the same time, I also have to give credit to Sue Bolton, who as a councillor has a proud history of standing up for public housing, from putting forward motions on council opposing the privatisation of public housing by the Andrews government, to supporting the campaign against the homeless man in 2017, and supporting grassroots campaigns such as the Bendigo Street occupation in 2016, where activists occupied empty houses in Bendigo Street in Collingwood. Sue also played a role in getting Moreland Council to join the homeless street count for the first time, which ensures that the numbers of rough sleepers in Moreland are accurately counted. Sue Bolton Moreland team, which I'm running um, for election for, we support campaigns to massively increase public housing and on council advocate that there should be mandatory planning laws that force develop property developments to mandate that 20% of housing and new developments are affordable and that we push to increase genuine affordable housing in Moreland. But I think more broadly, we need to campaign for solutions that take housing out of the market through campaigning to massively increase public housing. 
We also need rent caps for people in private rentals. Rent caps are common in, in Europe and in places like New York. We could have rent caps in Australia to stop landlords increasing rents. We also need to stop um, rewarding people for using housing as an investment by eliminating capital gains tax exemptions and negative gearing, which inflates the market and keeps lower income people out of um, home ownership. So, yeah, that's um, pretty much all I have to kind of say. Um, open, I guess open up for discussion. All right. Thank you, listeners. You are just listening to a recording of a speech actually by myself um, from the public forum that was held over the weekend titled Housing as Human Right in the Time of COVID-19. Anyway, that is getting to the end of our program. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week and please um, tune in for next week's program. Have a great week. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1800 634 206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that.